Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. Brr, it is cold in my area right now. For any of you listening in America, if you're on especially the uh, central or northern area of the states, stay warm this weekend. It's supposed to be a cold one. Anyway, what has been on my theology, theology, theology philosophy mind? Well, I have been going through the book of Job. And Job, I think, is among the most interesting and, in some ways, deep books of the entire Bible. A lot of people think it's Revelation, and I kind of get that, but I think it's kind of hypey. Ooh, it's so mysterious. It's talking about the sky woman giving birth to a child, and the dragons trying to eat the baby, and all of this crazy crap is going on, and Jesus is coming back, and so on and so forth. And yeah, I get that. Again, I think that's kind of hypey, and people get all wrapped up in the prophetic and the mysterious and all that sort of thing. Whereas when it comes to Job, Job is pretty dang in your face. See, like many other references in the Bible, there are a number of lessons that one can take out of it, and especially depending on your interpretation of what's going on or what was said, what Jesus said. Not that Jesus speaks in Job, unless you want to you know, um, take God's words towards the end, which I suppose would count. Anyway, um, yeah, if you take a different interpretation, you're going to take different lessons and so on and so forth. But the presentation of Job is very in your face. Some of the more obvious lessons, depending, again, on if you agree with my general uh, perspective on the characters, from Job, we get the very in-your-face lesson of bad things do happen to good people. And those the reasons can be completely ambiguous or even completely unknown. Um although I might be kind of repeating myself there. And then when it comes to Job's friends, the lesson is fairly obvious, at least to me. You can have pretty solid theology and still be completely against, or not with, at least, God. Or shall we say, not have God's approval? Anyway, the reason that it's really been sticking in my mind this go go around, I've probably gone through Job something like five or six times now. Um, and I listen to it. I don't really, well, I don't physically read very much at all uh, with how much time I'm busy on the road, etc. It's a lot more convenient to do audiobooks, audio Bibles, that kind of stuff. Anyway, so why is it, once again, that Job is really sticking in my mind this go around? Well, Job, I think, for the characters themselves, for Job and for the friends simultaneously, the real challenge, and the challenge then that is passed to us, is a challenge to our entire perspective of the reality of the universe itself and the reality of the character of God himself. How could God justly or rightly or whatever punish Job, and Job in his own eyes is without sin. And how could God, uh, or how could Job be right that he is without sin, 
surely he has to have done something wrong to deserve all of this torture, and so on. And what's really going on is that both parties are completely, what's the word, incredulous about what this whole scenario suggests about the activities of God. The friends continue to speak with such conviction about how well they know about how God behaves, especially the youngest one. And Job is, well, he's a couple steps beyond that. He might have thought, in fact, fairly similarly to the friends before that time, but now that whole paradigm is blown out of the water. He can't find anything in himself in which he has done wrong. And if you, uh, well, for those reading the story, if you take God's words at the beginning seriously, and by the way, at the very end, you have to be convinced that Job was right. And the funny thing to me is that, well, and I think another, again, one of the reasons why it's so plain that Job is a very in-your-face, plain and not just lesson, but challenge, is the fact that there are so many people even to this day who are extremely uncomfortable with the book of Job. Some, I think, that even wish it wasn't in the Bible at all. And they end up simply sounding like Job's friends. In other words, they want to find that Job did, in fact, do something wrong, said something wrong, oh, you know what, he sinned after he suffered greatly because he doubted God or something like that. So, so he needed his faith to be refined, etc. And I can't, I can't receive that. I can't uh, accept that interpretation, given once again the fact that at the beginning of the story, when Satan is coming up to God and um, God says, have you seen my servant Job? He... Uh, I can't exactly remember how the words go, but it's essentially he does no wrong. He is faithful. He, um, yeah, he is faithful in my eyes, that kind of thing. And then Satan challenges him on that. You know, uh, he's only faithful because you have blessed him, because he has a wonderful family and great possessions. And God's like, all right, I'll I'll take that bet. Um, But once again, the main point being that God shows confidence in Job's goodness. And as far as we can tell, and as far as the text reads, Job in no, at no point sinned in what he did or said. Specifically says, not even with his lips did Job sin. So are we just going to contradict the Bible? And again, God's very words. At the end of the story, after God has issued his challenge to Job, He doesn't flat out say that Job has done wrong. He simply says things like, who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? It's not you have done bad, you have sinned. He does say that, or something akin to it, about the friends. His friends did not speak well of him that is God. But about Job, that is not said. And Job, in fact, then is asked to uh, offer sacrifice for the sake of his friends, so that they will not be punished for what they had done. Job, on the other hand, is simply blessed again, and he has a fresh new family and new possessions and so on, after he's not only gone through the loss of all of his things, minus his wife, but also gone through the loss, temporary loss, of his health. So, the problem here, 
as far as I can see. Not, well, sorry, no, not the problem. The lesson, what st stood out to me, is that the friends essentially believed in a universal paradigm of karma. Now, I don't mean that they had taken on the Hindu idea of karma in and of itself. It's just that using the word karma is the easiest way to get to the point. The same thing could be said about the disciples when they came up to the blind man and asked Jesus, is this man blind because of his own sins or because of his parents' sins? And Jesus simply weighs the question and says that he is this way to show the glory of God. Almost completely, well, no, completely and in a sentence, throwing, down, throwing out an entire paradigm about the universe and how it operates. I think that the story of Job does the same thing in much longer form. So again, the, the friends are assuming that Job is suffering these things because his sin is being exposed through the punishment of what he is now suffering. The loss of his possessions and now the loss of his health. The friends, by the way, did fairly well when they first showed up because they just sat there and mourned with him for about seven days, if I remember correctly. I just went through it. I should remember, but nevertheless. But then they start opening their mouths, and they essentially reveal that they are convinced that Job, Job Dern, Dern did wrong. He's, he doth sin. And then Job calls them miserable comforters. So they are exposing the fact that they cannot conceive of a universe where somebody who has, in fact, done nothing wrong suffers. That breaks their paradigm. That breaks their theology completely. And it's understandable, is it not? Because what they are essentially saying is that the universe is just. That there is always karma. That there's always a punishment, not even just in the next life, but in this life, for anything that we have done wrong. We will suffer if we have done wrong. But more than that, we don't just suffer in our conscience, we suffer in our circumstances, and this is the most important aspect of the idea of karma, as far as I take it. Again, differentiating from the specifically Hindu concept of karma, just talking about circumstances that come up as a result of us doing wrong. The important aspect is that the circumstances are discontiguous, if that is a word. They are not contiguous, I'll have to look that up later. With the activity itself. Conscience is contiguous with an activity, right? If we stole something from a market, we may have the pangs of conscience that, well, we did not pay for this thing. We pick it up. We maybe eat it if it's a piece of candy or food or something like that. And in the back of our minds, we continuously are thinking about the fact, I didn't pay for this. That is contiguous. That is continuous with the activity itself. But the, uh, this idea of karma is you have stolen from the market, and now a week later, you lose $500. That would be the idea of this disconnected punishment for something you tried to do in secret, and therefore the loss of your $500 is a sign that you did something wrong. Once again, just like with the disciples, when they ask, is it his sin or his parents' sin that have led to his blindness? Not that they use those exact words, but that's the point.
Now, what I also want to expose, and this is the first thing that really started percolating in my mind, is that the idea that the world is dominated by this justice karma stuff, if you believe that, then what you essentially believe is that the world is deterministic. Everything has its result. Everything that go, goes wrong has a predictable counter reaction, so to speak. Again, not a direct corollary to what was done that was wrong, but there will come a punishment. You can go through all of the arguments that the friends use to try to buttress their perspective of who God is, and you can see they think the world, the universe as a whole, but particularly the world that they are on, is predictable. And a deterministic world is, of course, predictable. Now, obviously, this mixes very much with the idea of Calvinism. You believe that there is no free will, that the only reality is the will of God, that even though human beings appear to make their own choices, in truth, it's all based on the choices of God, and there are God's elect, and there are God's non-elect, and that's cut and dry, that's the end of it. So if you were to understand the perspective beyond the world, everything is predictable. Everything has a reason for happening the way that it does. Because either it's the determination, determination of God, or another version of the determination of God, it's karma, it's punishment. There is some connecting factor. What they are essentially rejecting, both Calvinists and karma believers, whatever you would want to call that, just universe adherents, is that the world cannot have any sort of free, chaotic, eclectic reality to it. It can't just be haphazard and unpredictable. It can't be, well, a world where somebody might put his hands in his pockets, not because he's trying to signal some secret message, but because he just chose to put his hands in his pockets. I know that seems like a very um, strange direction to go, but what's coming into my mind is G.K. Chesterton. He pointed out that an insane person really does, in fact, have an internally rational frame of mind. They th think that the person who winks is really signaling their accomplice, and the person who shuffles about is sending some signal elsewhere, and so on. Everything that everybody does has a cause, and it's not possible, really, in their own perspective, that people could be doing any even subtle action simply because it's free and willed and convenient or whatever. Everything has to have a connection, right? That is what Job's friends constantly argued for. And that is what Job, somewhat perhaps to his bewilderment, is saying, no, it can't be true, or my life is complete nonsense. My life is a direct contradiction to the reality that maybe even he once believed, but definitely his friends currently do believe. So, what does this mean in the larger context? If it is true, if the friends were right, and if the Calvinists are right, 
that everything has a connection. Everything has a reason. Every seeming circumstance that just hits a person must connect to something that has been done by God or in that person's past or something like that. Then obviously they have eliminated free will, yes. But in addition to that, what they have eliminated is grace. Now, why would I say that? Why does it eliminate grace? Well, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. That's the best definition I've heard of it thus far. And it makes a good deal of sense. Take, for example, King Manasseh. He's spoken of in, I believe, the book of, yes, Second Kings, because the book of First Kings ends with Solomon. Or is it David? Hmm. I'd have to look at it again. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's Solomon. Or somewhere or thereabouts. Oh, I just need to look it up. Um, but whatever the case, I think Manasseh's in Second Kings. He's also recorded in the books of the Chronicles. I think that one's Second Chronicles as well. Now, in the books of the Kings, it merely records that Manasseh was an evil king. Not only that, he was worse. About the other evil kings of Judah, specifically Judah, after the split from Solomon, um, the other bad kings of Judah, it specifically said that those kings copied the uh, sins of the kings of Israel. It doesn't say that about Manasseh. What King Manasseh did was he repeated the sins of the surrounding nations who worshipped their idols and did their pagan rituals and so on. So in a certain fashion, Manasseh was worse, as far as I read it. Now, in the books of the Chronicles, when Manasseh is brought up again, now, it, it does, of course, repeat that Manasseh did very, very wrong. However, it adds a detail that the kings leaves out. When he goes into exile, as a, it is, and it says as a direct result of what he had done and what he had led Judah to do, he then notices the evils and wrongs of his actions and repents to God. He starts praying and repenting of his actions. Now, the crazy thing is that God accepts his repentance. Not only that, God restores him. And then it records that Manasseh started teaching Israel and trying to help, sorry, Judah specifically, Israelites in Judah, to return to God. Now, Manasseh, once again, had done many things even worse than his predecessors, the bad ones specifically, and he had sacrificed his own children in the fire, and so on and so forth. So many pagan, pagan this and that, and just running from God, full tilt boogie. He repents in exile, <clears throat> he repents in exile, and how many of us would look at that man and just want to say, screw you? Look at what you did. Look at how many people you not only killed, but you might have cost them their eternal destiny. And, and you expect me to just... Be cool with you because you got sad about it, because you were caught, because you were punished? Oh, come on. Now, you stay in exile, you die a miserable death. That's what a lot of us would do. But God, as it says in Scripture, and specifically, I believe, having to do with uh, David himself, 
judges not the face, but the heart. And as far as I can tell, and especially given how Manasseh then proceeded after he got back to Judah, God knew that his repentance was genuine. It was real repentance. He even, by the way, did something similar with, um, let's see, it was King Ahab, if I remember correctly, of Israel. And he was very, very bad. Now, he never turned to God, but when he did repent, at least at one point, God heard him. So what I'm getting at is that God is willing to give grace, to give favor, that is, when it's not even deserved. And again, you can extend this to us in modern day in connection with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. As we understand theologically, and through Paul and Peter in particular, none of us has in any way deserved salvation. We have not deserved the reconnection of our relationship with God. God gave it, though we deserved it not. That's grace. So in other words, God does not act with pure justice all the time. For the simple fact, or for the simple reason, that he does not always administer justice. Often, he administers grace. Now, you could say that it's a higher form of justice because the person has reformed and repented and so on, at least temporarily. And yeah, I could, I could see that argument. But the point that I'm trying to stress here is that God will put aside justice for the sake of grace when a person accepts grace. They do have to eat their humble pot, absolutely, but they do not have to face justice. Now, first of all, let's look at the karmic idea of reality. If it is true that there is always some sort of disconnected punishment for what we have done wrong, and everything has its connection, I think, for example, of the sort of people who will look at disasters like hurricanes or earthquakes that happen in various parts of the world, and they just basically sound like Job's friends once again when they say something as callous and pitiful as, oh, these people must have sinned, and, or maybe it's America in general or, or whatever country it is, oh, there must have been corruption here, otherwise these disasters would not have taken place. As if things just don't ever happen simply because the laws of physics operate the way that they do. To me, it's rather heartless. Anyway, so if every disaster, everything that has ever gone wrong in the world has some moral connection, and I do think that there is often some connection there, or these instances like Manasseh, getting, Manasseh and Judah, getting taken out into exile, well, those sorts of things um, probably wouldn't happen. <laughs> um, what am I trying to get at here? It probably didn't look like, you know, God was standing behind the army of those who took Manasseh into exile or something like that. No, it was probably just a regular old war. Manasseh gets taken off into exile and then gradually realizes, hey, I done messed up. It probably wasn't some angel that was clearly and visibly standing behind the army or something like that. It doesn't often look that way, almost never, in fact, as far as I've seen. Anyway, so 
yeah, I'm leaving room for the fact that sometimes disaster befalls those during their lifetimes for the bad, bad things that they have done. But in general, if everything that ever occurs has some, com some connection to something that has gone wrong, something that people have done wrong, where's grace? How could it be possible that anybody could, could have favor without having merited that favor? If everything is so, if everything is so predictable, if everything is so fine-tuned in that particular way, for example, let's use the antithesis of the same idea, and again, the disciples of Jesus make for a great example. The rich young ruler, Jesus, basically, he doesn't turn him away, but he gives him a challenge that really cuts to the core, and then he walks away. And that's when Jesus says, it is easier for the camel to pass through an eye, the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are incredulous. Why? Because, especially if you look at the blessings of the Old Testament, most of what goes to the people of Israel, based on God's very promises, if they do well, is monetary success, prosperity, children, fertility, etc., etc. It's goods, if you will. So for Jesus to claim that it's harder for a rich man to go into heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle is completely flabbergasting. But once again, if you believe in the karmic sort of universe, then every good that befalls a person is because of a moral good that that individual has done. So when does anybody ever receive unmerited favor? And furthermore, can it ever be that somebody who is good has bad things done upon them? This would contradict with the scripture itself, where we read, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Can't remember exactly where that's written. I think it's a psalm. These things are not compatible. Grace is not possible in a world where every mere chance happenstance or circumstance that may or may not have a moral connection, particularly those that do not have a moral connection, would be fundamentally impossible. The argument breaks down. Now, with the Calvinist, the the um, equation gets a little bit more complicated, but that's partially because the Calvinist theology is extremely well ironed out. I don't think it's rational, but it's very well argued. In the Calvinist perspective, there is this concept of human total depravity. In other words, it is not possible at all for a human being to merit anything. Now, Calvinists who might be listening this, listening to this, I can practically hear where they're going to go next. Well, duh, yes, obviously, grace therefore is possible in a Calvinist perspective because the fact that human beings could never deserve anything at all, if God then does allow some to be his elect, it's not on their merits, and therefore it is grace. 
I think you do not understand your own theology. Why? Here's the point. In the Calvinist theology, again, there is total, depra total depravity. Human beings on their own, without the help of God, cannot merit anything. Now, the breakdown between God's elect and God's non-elect in Calvinist theology is the interesting component here to me. If God has made an individual his elect from before all time, then he already has all the merit he could possibly have. And he cannot reduce it or increase it. Why? Because he has God's election. Even if it appears at times in that individual's life that he is not an elect, perhaps like, say, King Manasseh, but then turns to God towards the end of his life, then clearly he was always one of God's elect from the very beginning. And therefore, having the only merit he ever could have, which is God's determination upon his life, he never lost. He never gained it of his own choice, nor did he ever lose it of his own choice, whoever that person was. And in like manner, those who are not the elect neither have any merit or can ever achieve any merit because the primary merit is not our actions, again, based on the Calvinist theology. It is God's election. So God's, quote, grace, which isn't really grace in the Calvinist theology, only goes to the elect because only the elect have God's favor at all. Even those who may seem to live a very good life and do, in fact, live very morally, but are not God's elect, well, they're screwed. They're doomed anyway. It doesn't matter. They never had any merit because, once again, no human being can achieve any ounce of merit in the Calvinist theology. So, how is it then possible that unmerited favor, that is grace, could ever exist in the Calvinist theology? If God could ever give unmerited favor in the Calvinist theology, then God is by definition going against himself. He has to, because the only merit is his election and for him to give unmerited favor is to go against his election or his unelection. If the unelect achieve God's favor, then God is contradiction, contradicting his unelection of that person. And then you might say, oh, it's a temporary thing. God just gives his favor to an individual for a defined purpose for a temporary time. Uh, no, that can't work. It could work in a free will environment. It cannot work in a Calvinist environment. Because by definition, the unelect never have God's favor. They can't achieve it. Not even if they do do some genuine good in the world. For they have never been his elect. But those who are God's elect always have his favor and can't lose it. 
So no, for God to go against his own elect favor is to go against himself in the Calvinist theology. So once again, going back to Job, I understand the temptation. I understand the impetus, the, tem- the draw to believe that the universe is just. Of course, we want the universe to be orderly, to be, in a sense, predictable. Even if we can't understand the order, we want the order to be there. We want it to, at least at some level, maybe it's God's level alone, to make sense. And the only way for that to work, the only way for that to be possible, is for the universe to be just through and through from top to bottom. In fact, I have argued with Calvinists, who, in my opinion, are at least a little bit more honest about their theology, they have essentially argued that justice is not about justness on the level that we understand it, it's just whatever God chooses. Whatever God chooses is that which is just. So then what he did to Job makes sense, not because it's just in a general sense, but because God chose to do it willy-nilly of his own free will, and that's it. God in the Calvinist theology is the only one with genuine free will. I think that's absolutely nuts, but anyway. The draw to think that the universe is orderly and just is very keen. Like I said. But the book of Job smacks in our faces that that isn't quite true. I would argue that the universe is not just, it's much more than that. It's free. God does not have to make choices that makes that make sense, and neither do we. God can take up Satan on a bed and allow a very good man to suffer, maybe not even for his own sake at all though I do think personally that Job did gain by the experience. Why? Because God's free. Because God is not bound to justice. If God was bound to justice, then there is a force, and this goes back to my previous episode, there is a force beyond God to which God is beholden to, and therefore we should worship justice and not God. But if God is truly free to behave the way that he wants to, if pain and bad circumstances do not have to be connected, again, the karmic argument, to sin and wrongdoing, then if he wants to take Satan up on a bet, he can take Satan up on a bet. And what I see that God gained is that, well, God won the bet. God was like, all right, bet, Job will win. Job will go all the way through and he will never curse me to my face. He will never sin. Oh, get rather jaded, angry, upset. I mean, of course, obviously, any reasonable person would. But he won't sin. And according to the text, he never did. So, in, And then there is, of course, the challenge of the nature of God. 
does God always act justly? I mean, I already pretty much said it, but no. Why? Because grace. God is not beholden to justice. God will administer justice where grace is not applicable, of course. God is consistently just. Not because he's beholden to justice, though, but because that is his nature. So where a person does not pass through the eye of the needle, if you wish to say it that way, or I, I wish to say it that way to connect to an earlier argument, if someone passes through the eye of the needle of grace, justice is not, in fact, administered. And the scripture makes this very plain. So no, God is not always just. That is to say, God does not always administer justice. God often administers grace. God does not have to always send circumstances on the earth because it has some moral connection. He's free to do what he wants. And this also connects to arguments that are made in previous podcasts, such as the value of human life and a number of other things. And if you want my arguments on that, you can look up the episodes. So anyway, this has been a bit more of a ranty episode, and I know I kind of got lost in the weeds a couple of times without realizing it, but I hope, as always, it's been very interesting and shed some light on what is perhaps one of the most difficult books in the Bible. Until next time.